Awesome. Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ari McGee, joined by the OG triumvirate this week. We've got Jim Heskett. Hello. Pippa Warner. Hello. And Nick Thagger. Good morning. Uh, good to be with you guys. That's, Nick uh, has taken up I, I, ASMR. I don't know. Um, I welcome to, welcome to NPR Author News Weekly, brought to you by Public Broadcasting. <laughs> And viewers like you, and definitely <laughs> not me, PBS guy. Although I will admit to watching uh, this guy. old house. Exactly. Mm. How many times can they ask it? So what's going on, people? Besides Nick's uh, OnlyFans ASMR career. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does anything compete with that? Yeah, I don't mean anything that exciting. No. <clears throat> You know, he's always talking about like home bases and streams of income and stuff. So it doesn't surprise me. It's legit. Mm. Legit indeed. Mm. <clears throat> I guess he doesn't, you don't want to give anyone the link on this show, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to like feel like you're pushing your chewing, eating Long John Silvers with a microphone in your mouth type of thing. <laughs> the very specific <laughs> <laughs> request. <laughs> Hey, I'm not saying I'll be emailing you about it. (laughs) All right, right on. If we actually, I don't even know if we can do this today. Can we do the news drop based on our recording situation? Negatory. No news drop. Pippa, beatbox it for us. Pippa's, you're sounding like one of those one of those stock alarms that you get when off your new iPhone. You're like, why would I ever? Why would I ever choose this? Yeah. I think that works. I think we just found a way to save the show some money. I think you seriously overestimate how much that costs us to use every week. You infinitely overestimate how much it actually costs us. Oh, interesting. All right. So, story number one. Let's talk good about millennials and Gen Z. Now, I've never really been super hip on where the break is because someone told me I was born in 82. Someone told me I'm like the last, the first year of millennials or something. Like I was unaware of that. So I'm 87 and I'm apparently an elder millennial. Elder millennial. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. I'm like freaking Galadriel or something then. You're you're a geriatric (laughs) millennial. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so Gen Z is after millennials, right? Is that the way it mm-hmm. works? Yeah. Because okay. Gen X was before millennials, though, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. See, who does that? What? That messes with me. But in any event, let's talk good about millennials and Gen Z for a second. Our first story comes to us from businessinsider.com, written by someone named Hillary Hoff, Hoffauer. Uh, it's millennial and Gen Z nostalgia is bringing back book sales, indie bookstores, and Barnes & Noble. I was unaware of this. So my question for you guys is, is this something that's going to actually help Barnes & Noble stay open? You know, it says younger generations are reviving chain bookstores 
reported Alexandra Lang for Bloomberg. Millennials feel nostalgic for the Barnes and Noble stores of their childhood. Gen Z craves the pre-social media simplicity of 90s big box bookstores and share book trends on TikTok. It's like we want and there they went the Gen Zing again. <laughs> exactly. We want it how it was in the 90s, but we're gonna TikTok the hell out of this. TikTok. Thing. Uh, so what do you guys think? Is this gonna help Barnes and Noble stay afloat? Let's see. Nick, you look like you have a derisive look on your face right now. Mm-mm. No, they're gonna figure out how to screw it up. <laughs> the problem with so this, you know, this article talks about nostalgia and you know, this my generation going toward book stores, indie bookstores specifically, because they're chasing that nostalgic. I get that, man. I love books. I love paper books, hardcovers, all that. The reason I enjoyed Barnes and Noble when I was in high school was they had chairs in their stores. And the reason I don't want to walk into one now is that I can't browse like I used to be able to. I I can you you know they, they don't want you to, to linger. They want you to in and out. They want you to buy their shit and leave. If that's all it's for, I'm gonna go to Amazon all day long because it's gonna be cheaper. I'll get it just as fast almost these days. And um, you have a chair. And I have a chair to sit. I don't have to get out of my chair. It literally will, like the Amazon guy will open my door and hand it to me if I want him to, you know? So I think that's, it, it such, sounds like such a simple thing, but I honestly think that's the first thing I would do to fix a Barnes and Noble store is put the freaking chairs back in, give people a place to sit and enjoy. Yeah, they have the coffee shop and all that, but come on, you know, have some couches and, and some armchairs in, in each section. Let people linger, let people hang out. And for God's sake, be a bookstore, not a knickknack store that happens to have books in the back. Mm. Uh, so I get the whole indie bookstore thing, but these are probably the bookstores that are doing it right, letting people come in. And we have one here in town in Colorado Springs. I love going in there because I can sit, I can hang out with a couple with a stack of books, figure out which one I want. You know, because it I takes a while to get warmed up when you're reading a book. It takes a while exactly. to know that it's something that you want. You got to get into that thing. Yeah, I, I think specifically nonfiction. If I'm trying to solve a problem or figure something out, like there's at least ten books that I, I can that are probably recently written that I would want to pick up and I don't want to buy them all, but I want to flip through them and see which one, you know, speaks to me the best. And and you can't really do that on Amazon still, even with look inside type stuff. So I think that's what bookstores need to do to succeed. My guess is this is what, what these indie bookstores are doing and why people like going there. Okay. And now Pitbull, Meanwhile, I'm watching the ad on the page and it's of uh, it's of wasabi being made. I'm utterly fascinated and I may not respond to any other uh, inquiries. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, mine's about a camera, apparently. Uh, yeah, a thirty-two thousand dollar camera. Okay, so Pippa, I got the same question for you, yes. but before before you go, let me throw a couple more uh, bits of info in here that I'm reading. Okay. Okay. Uh, per Alexandra, in her recent Bloomberg article, book sales are up thirteen percent year over year, and more than a hundred and seventy-two indie bookstores have opened up in the U.S. last year. And they claim that Barnes and Noble is rapidly expanding. So what's your take on, on all of these things that I'm just word vomiting at you right now? I like that it's the indie bookstores as well, because those get to be a lot more tailored. Anytime you've got like the, the big corporation and just everyone will get three of this book and this in the front window and it just it doesn't work as well. But honestly, what I'm nostalgic for is the used bookstores. You could mm. just go in and there was this jumble of books that was mostly sorted by genre. Oh, yeah. And then you just wander around and that's the one we have here in town is exactly that. They have some new ones nice. too, but they're all mixed together and it's all oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite browsing experience, which I've honestly started to get from libraries because gross. I 
a whole bunch of a whole bunch of used bookstores don't exist anymore. There isn't one near us. I think so. everything's it's government true. yellow it's by the true. shittiest building we can find. <laughs> we have a we've got a, a place called the Friends of the Library, and they sell the library books after a few years, and so it's like a huge bookstore, a used bookstore. So it's amazing, Jim. What do you yes. think about this wonderful bit of Jen? You're, but you're Gen X, right? Um, in between, oh. I'm at the tail end of Gen X. I'm not quite a millennial because I graduated college in the last century. I mean, graduated high school in the last century. What do I think about this? I think nostalgia is a poor marketing strategy. I'm glad to see the bookstores are doing well because during the pandemic, everyone said they were going to die. So I'm glad to see that turned out not to be true. You know, like as a reader, I love having more choice. I love that there's something legitimate that can compete with Amazon out there. You know, books are, I, I feel like brick and mortar experience is going to die, you know, eventually it's going to take several decades, I think, because there are lots of products that, that really thrive in brick and mortar, like, like clothing stores, you know, like it's hard to replace an online shopping experience that you could get buying clothes. Cause you can't try them on. You can't feel them. I feel like books are on the cusp of that. There is something to be said with going to a bookstore and taking it down off the shelf to read it, but you can really easily replicate that experience on Amazon just by reading a look inside or reading mm-hmm. a blurb is the same thing as the back cover. So there's a bunch of products I think that will, permanently trans transition to online selling only in the next couple of decades. And there are some holdouts like clothing shops, bookstores that will take longer to die, but they will die eventually. Mm. That's, that's <laughs> real sad, man. That's thank you for being the voice of reason though. <laughs> okay. Good times. Everybody go find a bookstore and buy something. Cause why the heck not? Our next story is amazing. And I feel like, Pippa might know something about this because she's got this real like kingpin vibe going on, you know, every time we talk about these murder stories. So maybe she was consulted about this. I don't know. I thought mine, wasn't I doing embezzlement? Yeah, but you embezzlement and like stealing portfolios and you have all kinds of of hustles. You have all kinds of hustles. There's one thing. Vice is a varied field. Exactly. Exactly. You never. Whenever you see some vice, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know what I mean? So, in any event, this is coming to us from CBSNews.com, which is probably the first time I've referenced them on this show. And it is romance novelist who wrote How to Murder Your Husband goes on trial four years after chef spouse found dead in culinary school kitchen. The trial of self-published romance writer accused of fatally shooting her chef husband started Monday. Nancy Crampton Brophy has remained in custody since her arrest in September 2018, facing a murder charge in the death of Daniel Brophy. Brophy was killed as he prepped for work at the Oregon Culinary Institute in southwest Portland around 7.30 a.m. on June the 2nd, 2018. He was alone in a kitchen when he was killed, and there was no there were no obvious suspects. This is like a, a mystery book. What do you guys think? Did she do this, Pippa? I'm sure she had to call you for permission to whack someone before she did. Did she talk to you about it at all? But yeah, there were copyright issues, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's very, uh, like, the article is really weird. She's got five motives <clears throat> for murder divorce is expensive your church frowns on divorce but you don't and like you want to marry someone else 
it's your profession, which as a motive for murdering your spouse is just like, I guess I need more apprenticeship hours. Like what (laughs) even what? And then abuser. This one is tough. Anyone can claim abuse. Okay. I don't, what are you? So it seems monumentally stupid if she did do it, but I've learned that's not a reason to not think someone has done a thing. So I have no idea. Interesting. Interesting. Jim, did she just give herself away in all this or what's going on here, man? I have a lot of thoughts about this article. First is that about six or seven years ago, I wrote a guest post for somebody's blog and it was called something like how to not blow up your critique group or how to not kill the members of your critique group. So I just want to say if anybody in my old critique group shows up dead, (laughs) uh, whoever I published that article with, please take it down. I don't remember now. Um, But so there's a lot of interesting things here. First of all, I don't understand why she needed to kill her husband because her name is Nancy Crampton Brophy. So she obviously grew up with money. Um, (laughs) The next thing is she's been in jail since 2018 and her website is still up. Who is who's running her website? Her website's still there. Maybe Um, she bought a five-year hosting plan. I don't know, but somebody's (laughs) running it. It's still up. And she's got all these books on Amazon and they're all, you know, like in, they're in the phone books. They're like, the ranks are like 5 million, 6 million, 7 million. And then she has one in her series called The Wrong Husband. And that one rank is like a hundred thousand. So people are (laughs) clearly, there's a lot of morbid curiosity. And I read some of her reviews. And there are some reviews that mention, you know, when she was arrested, they found this on her and this is what she did. And here's an example of when that happened in the book. Nancy (laughs) Brophy writer, subtitle of the page, Virgin Pages, Schizophrenia and the Waste Basket. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. So I don't really know what to say about this in general other than what an idiot. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Although, to be fair, I think you're being a little hard on her. I think it's hard to run Amazon ads from a jail cell. You know what I mean? So it's no wonder her books are ranking so high right now. You know? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think Nick is a little struggling at the moment. He's lost a lot of weight and his head looks like a iPhone Lightning plug-in. Port. I'm working on it. Yeah. We're getting there. Slowly but surely, guys. <laughs> right on. I, I, I will say it's crazy that she's been in jail since 2018, you know, her bond must be extraordinary, right? Like she must have nothing that she can put up for it because people who admit to killing people get out on bond. You know, it's all about the fact she didn't want to pay rent somewhere. Yeah. I mean, you might, you might have a point. Maybe she's like, I'm saving my, saving my Amazon money. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, what's going on with Nancy Crampton Brophy, man? I got nothing. This one, I like this article. This is, yeah, I got nothing. Really, the only thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that CBS was very quick, as in the fourth word, fifth word of this article was self-published. They're very quick to point that out. I don't think there's anything there. I'm not saying it's some conspiracy, but traditionally published romance writer, if it was, if, you know, she were Harlequin, I don't know. Mm, mm, Yes. Mm. Separate her from the rabble. Yeah, from, yeah. Uh, we, you we know, don't associate with folks like self-published romance writers. And here's why they murder their husbands and write about it. <laughs> Probably, you know, they say write, say write what you know. And I guess Nancy did that allegedly. So, uh, all right. I wonder if it's going to be like that one dude whose three wives went missing, and later they started being like, "No, let's exhume all of them." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who's that? Scott Peterson, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, he he definitely killed this one. Like, what about the last one that died weirdly? Just found in the bottom of a bathtub, you say. Yeah. Interesting. Let's look into that. In, in cop work, I think they call that a clue. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is interesting. We'll have this in the show notes. Uh, if you want to see, check in on Nancy, Nancy Crampton, Brophy, Bromfy, whatever. So our next story is coming to us from the Wall Street Journal. And I got to be honest with you guys, this might be my favorite story of the week because I don't understand it at all. It's incredible, right? So it says, it's like something Nick would write, right? Because this is like up your alley of stuff. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> it's uh, it's written by Joseph Pisani at the Wall Street Journal. And it says, uh, two Charles Darwin notebooks disappeared more than 20 years ago. They mysteriously reappeared. The notebooks in which naturalist, oh, this is bad, all right, in which the naturalist was working out his theory of evolution, showed up at Cambridge University Library in a bright pink gift bag. (laughs) So apparently, somebody stole these books 20 years ago, and I guess they decided they were done with them, and so they put them in a gift bag addressed to the librarian and said, happy Easter. So could you imagine being this guy and opening this bag up with these, what, 200-year-old manuscripts that are just hanging out in there? I don't know. This is really interesting. Uh, Nick, why don't you go first and tell me what part of this you plan on using in a future book? Because it has to be something, man. Yeah. So I can't read the article because I don't pay for shitty journalism and so i don't I, either i don't either it's, it's, shows, it. It's it shows up browser trick wouldn't work for me but yeah it shows up um, for me. Anyway, maybe it just doesn't uh, like you it probably just doesn't like me it probably doesn't <laughs> want to pay for me <laughs> i yeah so i what i would do is take this and and go with the whole you know darwin obviously there's a lot of contentiousness with you know the religious side of things that believe nothing ever evolved ever even though there's signs to prove whatever you know because religious people are dumb but uh, then there's easy, the other side that's boy, you know, like easy. science Good is a Lord. thing, and and here's this <laughs> Charles Darwin thing to prove it all. Anyway, the whole point is what I would do is I'd put something in these two manuscripts. Like here's an analogy, an example by way of analogy. Plato uh, wrote about Atlantis in Critias and Timaeus. I think were the two, um, uh, not soliloquies. Whatever the word is, you know, in uh, pretty much only those two. I think those are only two he referenced. I would have something like that appear and have a third book that Plato wrote that nobody ever had ever seen before talking about Atlantis in much more detail and depth, you know, as he Mm -hmm. heard directly from Solon who went to Egypt. I could talk about Atlantis all day. I would do the same thing with Charles Darwin where it's, you know, his diary that he took on what was the ship called, but uh, the endeavor. No, that's not what it was that he took down there and, and studied all that stuff. I would have another journal where he's basically proving this theory of evolution in excruciating detail or something like that that would make a lot of people mad at the time. And so this was hidden for so long. And the person who sent it to the library is playing a big game against the Catholic church or something. And there's like a huge conspiracy and Mm. without being able to read the article, it's a little tricky, you know, (laughs) going off guesses here, but. Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Jim. what What do you think, man? What do you think? I'm just looking at this article and there's a picture of, uh, I assume a librarian. Oh, it's Dr. Jessica Gardner, university librarian, expecting the Darwin notebooks. She's flipping through it without gloves on and it's driving me crazy. Yeah. There's fingers, the and oil she's like from breathing your fingers. on it. She's not wearing a mask. Like we've yeah. all got masks now. That's gross. Anyway, 
What I, I don't know what to say about this article, but I will give you my pitch for how I would write this as a do it, man. I want to hear this, man. <laughs> I think I like Nick's idea, but what I would probably do is I would probably focus on those 20 years that it was missing. That's the most interesting stuff to me. And especially probably the last few months, like what inspired this person to bring it back? Hmm. Something must have happened. There's the conflict. What happened to inspire this person to return something like did, Was it like 20 years of bad luck? Was it 20 years of being secretly chased by some Darwin Templar society mm. and they finally had to give up something mm. like that. That sounds interesting to me. I like that. What What if it, it someone had it hidden the whole time and then like they died and they willed it to someone. And now this person had to spend the last like few months escaping all those people you're talking about. And so they're just, we got to get rid of this thing. I don't know. Whatever. I like it. Pippa, you know what? Why don't you give me a pitch? What would you do? What would you do if you had this uh, story floating around in your head? What would your twist on it be? I don't know. I, I, I'm usually writing fantasy and sci-fi, so I think this would be showing up on a spaceship in the middle of nowhere, and it mm. was just like, you know, someone found it, and it was part of their personal stash in their incongruous Spartan mm. spaceship bedroom, and then eventually they were like, okay, I've read it. I can give it back now. <laughs> <laughs> So what was it? The diamond from Titanic. Someone had it the whole time. And they're like, they like, I'm, they find it during a heist and they're like, I'm going to read it. And then I will return it. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So anyways, nothing uh, really to note here. Just something cool pertaining to books. And uh, it's hard to find those articles every week. Thank you, Charles Dahl, Darwin thief person. Okay. So our next story here, let me look at the time. Okay. You guys maybe can give me some of the nuts and bolts about this. This is from the new publishing standard.com written by Mark Williams. And it says as print sales plummet 20% industry says print fatigue is to blame. So uh, print fatigue is a new one to me. And it says that imagine for one second that it was ebook sales that had precipitously dropped 20% in the past week and was down almost 8% so far for the year. Um, so they're talking about how us print sales dropped 20% in a week and they say it's print fatigue. What, what the- why, what is going on here and why is this to blame? Jim, what you got for me, man? Well, I, first of all, I have this, I don't know who wrote this article. Mark Williams has got a very Chuck Wendig snarky kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Print fatigue. That's just funny because it's just, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, why are print sales down? That's because of print fatigue. What does print fatigue mean? People are tired of print. They don't want print. So the reason print sales are down is because people don't want print books. That's very helpful. Thank you for explaining that to us, publishing industry. They have no idea what they're talking about. They don't even know. They're just making up words to, to make their shareholders feel better. It's merely print fatigue. That's all it is. What does that mean? I don't know. Oh, Everyone you don't know will- what print fatigue is? <laughs> yes. they, they will have a, oh. a short rest. <laughs> They'll have a short rest and they'll feel better later from the fatigue. <laughs> so, Pippa, do you, does this even make sense to you? This article it's, here, uh, a little. It's not all that useful without knowing what the numbers were before the pandemic, because a whole bunch of stuff fluctuated very sharply during. And so, what I'd be interested to see is how those numbers go with the ten-year trend. If we could see week over week and see where they trending up. Did they go up sharply and now they're just like falling back to normal? Hmm. 
I don't know. I have no baseline. I understand. Percentage changes, I'm usually wary when no one gives me any sort of baseline. I got you. I got you. I'm partial to the baseline from killing me softly. If you want to listen to that later, I think that'll give you. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. It's one of the best. It's one of the best. Mr. Thacker, what you got for me? Yeah, man, this just reeks of the movie Armageddon when when they put the the line space dementia in there. Like they're like, we need something. We just Dude, we need I'm something. I'm sorry to interrupt you. When you start out with this reeks of, I know nothing is going to be good for the guy that wrote the article. Like there's nothing happy coming from Mark Williams no. right now, dude. Well, I, I'm not, and I'm, it's not Mark Williams' fault. He's just quoting, you know, the Publishers Weekly, which I also can't freaking read because they want 15 bucks a month for me. Sorry, guys, I don't support shitty journalism. Do better. Maybe I'll buy it. Anyway, yeah. So print fatigue just seems like one of those. Michael Bay made up like quick guys. We need something that people will buy. Why is, you know, googly eye guy, whatever his name is, um, sitting on the bomb, you know, being crazy. Oh, space dementia. And everyone's, <laughs> of course, carry on with the movie, please. Maybe That's what this sense. reminds me of. Publishing execs are like, what do we tell them now? We've used every other excuse and they're getting tired of the COVID one. I, I got it, says the intern from the corner. What about print fatigue? <laughs> the books are tired. They don't want to be printed. The trees Give them an arrays. <laughs> they're tired they just want to take a break from being turned into books and then flipped open they just want to sit on the shelves for a little bit longer and the executives all as wise as they are decided that's exactly oh, no, no. what we'll call it i'm picturing a very rich woman on a chaise lounge going i'm fatigued of books <laughs> and tosses a grape in her mouth <laughs> eating bonbons Wave Bitumen, I am her. fatigued. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> that's what I'm picturing. I thought the books themselves were the things that were fatigued. I find that much more hilarious and yet plausible. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love dumb. it. Traditional All industry right. being being traditional and dumb, like always. What do you expect? Yeah. Traditional's got a traditional. I do like how he's got like star ratings up here on his in his metadata inform or meta information section. There, there are no review. There's no ratings yet, but he's got a place for you to rate this article, one to five stars. <laughs> this article reeked of, and then let him have it. Let I just rated it. it one star, mostly for his for his picture. <laughs> right on. Well, all right, guys. I'm looking at the time. It seems like we're pretty good. We'll skip this last one. We'll just tack it on next week. You guys got anything you want to add? Anything to fill up two minutes and space dementia? Mm. Rockhound. It was Steve Buscemi, wasn't it? Was Steve Buscemi. Movie? I was just going to say, I remembered his name now. It's Steve Buscemi. Yeah. And he's like straddling the, the nuke, sunshine. right? Mm. And they're like, what's yeah. wrong with him? They're like, space dementia. Calm. That's a real thing, folks. It happened. <laughs> we let that happen. We let that right. happen. For all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.